Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I say to you, our church family, uh, with a great sincerity in my heart, uh, how grateful I am for our partnership in the gospel of King Jesus. And I thank you um, for the opportunity to be a part of this this beautiful faith family. And uh, I say I love you. Uh, Very, very much so. And my family loves you. And we pray for you often. And I thank you as a husband for how you love my wife. And I thank you as a dad how you love my kids. I'm so grateful for our church. So grateful for this. This is beautiful, right? This is beautiful. And to our guests who are here, we are so glad that you are here today. And you might be here as a guest. You might be a follower of Jesus who's just currently not plugged into a local church. And we would love for you to, to consider being a part of what Jesus is doing in our, in our community here. Uh, you might be a guest here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. In fact, maybe you're even skeptical about Jesus. And we want you to know that we are really glad that you're here. Uh, we're really glad you're here. And we hope you'll come back and we hope you'll continue to learn about King Jesus. And we, it would be our prayer that he would rescue your heart and pull you out of the despair of sin and seat you in his heavenly kingdom because he has good news. We have good news every day. And we celebrate it all the time, right? The tomb is empty, the throne is occupied, the king is coming. And so we celebrate this today. Uh, we are launching into our summer series, the best summer yet. So over the summer, we'll be talking about ways that we can engage and live out a best summer yet. And certainly, uh, a major part of that, uh, to have a best summer yet, would be to have our hearts more fully formed so that we might love and live like Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, about a month ago, Pastor Jesse preached the back half of Philippians 4, and I'm going to take the front half today. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. And what I'd like to do uh, for our time right now is to read through our text. So Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, I'll pause for a moment of prayer, and then we'll spend the remainder of our time just trying to think through this beautiful, beautiful teaching in, in the wisdom and word of God. So hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in Philippians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. A merciful Father, as we open your word by the power of your spirit, reveal to us your son and transform our hearts so that we might love and live like him. May Christ increase and may we decrease. In his name we pray these things. Amen. 
Amen. I've always found uh, the sporting events of the Olympics and the World Cup to be very interesting uh, sporting events because it really involves the entire world coming together. Right? So you have all these people from all these different backgrounds and all these different nations all coming together. And while they're all together, there are certain marks or characteristics or things that are identifiable that display that that particular person is a citizen of a certain region, right? It might be the colors of the clothes that they're wearing that demonstrate that they're citizens of a particular country, or perhaps it's a language that they are speaking that demonstrates that they're from a particular region of the world, or perhaps it's a demeanor or a characteristic, but there are identifiable marks that demonstrate to those around them that they are citizens of a certain region. In Philippians chapter 3, a few verses before where we're at, uh, verse 20, Paul tells the Philippian church that they are to live and to operate as citizens of heaven. That our citizenship as disciples of Jesus is in the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus Christ has inaugurated on earth. And our citizenship is found in his community. And as disciples of the king, there are certain characteristics, there are certain marks, there are certain identifiable aspects that we portray to the world that show that we are citizens of Jesus's community. And as we look through this text at the end of Philippians, we're gonna see some of those marks, not every mark, but certainly some very identifiable marks that demonstrate to the world that we are disciples of King Jesus. And so we're gonna think through those together and by the grace of God and the spirit of God, be challenged to grow and to develop in these characteristics ourselves so that we can show the world what it looks like when King Jesus takes over our hearts. So beginning in verse four, jumping straight to the text, the apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's probably a verse that many of us have heard. You see it sometimes monogrammed on pillows or t-shirts, and it's beautiful, and it should. It should be a verse that sits in our minds and our hearts day by day. That we are a community of people who are marked by joy. Now this word rejoice in the original language is very holistic. And what I mean by that is it, it is um, an internal attitude that is expressed in external actions. So it's a holistic joy, that there is a joy deep down in the deepest parts of our hearts that is then being expressed to those around us and, and demonstrated to the world. And we might hear that and think, well, how in the world can we rejoice and have joy in the face of so much suffering and chaos in the world, right? And the brokenness of the world. And we live in a society that, that celebrates sin, right? Like how can we, uh, demonstrate joy in the face of this suffering. And Paul gives us the answer in the text, right? Rejoice in who? The Lord, right? Rejoice in what? The Lordship of the King, right? That we're not rejoicing and finding joy in our circumstances. Our circumstances are no, no doubt challenging, right? But our joy as disciples of the King is not found in our circumstances. It's found in the lordship of King Jesus, right? We should note in the text that Paul says rejoice in the Lord, right? And it's important that we keep in mind that that is a title. 
right? That is a title for who he is. Uh, Matthew Bates, I've been reading his new book called Why the Gospel, and I, I love it. He's, he says in the, in the first chapter that the Lord Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name. It's a claim, not a name. That he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. King Jesus exercises his lordship, his authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And we can rejoice in that, in the face of our trials, in the face of our suffering, in the face of our pain. We have a good king who is ruling and who is reigning for the good of his people. A couple of parts of that that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, which is this really beautiful text. And it's like an old hymn that Paul inserts into the letter. And a few aspects of Jesus' lordship that we can celebrate. First, that he is the humble king. That he did not count equality with God something to be exploited or taken advantage of, but rather he emptied himself. That you and I are a people who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And left to ourselves, uh, we are utterly hopeless. But King Jesus did not look down upon us in our hopelessness and think, well, I'm above this. But rather he humbled himself. He is our humble king who has stepped into our weakness and stepped into our suffering and come into the chaos to bring the redemption and the reconciliation that our hearts have longed for. He is the humble king. He is also the servant king. Paul continues in that portion of the Philippian letter, and he says not only did he humble himself, he, comes, he takes on flesh and he comes as a servant who dies. And not just any death, but a death on a cross, which is the most vile and uh, shameful way a person could have died. He is the servant king. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, including you and me. And the only reason we have hope, the only reason we have redemption, the only reason we have newness of life is because we have been served through the bloodshed of King Jesus. And in his blood, we have found the forgiveness of sin. In his blood, we have found newness of life. And so we can rejoice that he's the humble king. We can rejoice that he's the servant king. Paul continues in that text. He talks about how he has now been exalted he is the name above all names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. So we can celebrate, we can rejoice in our circumstances, in our suffering, in our trials, in our pain. Because Jesus Christ is the humble king, the servant king the exalted king. And one more aspect that's really important for us today is that he is the coming king. He is coming. And that's good news, y'all. Is that not? In the face of your trials, in the face of your suffering, in the face of your hurt, in the face of your grief, what we really want more than anything else is to know that there's an expiration date. And you know what? There is. There is a death of death. There is a death of the chaos. There is an end to the plague of sin. And it is coming at the return of the king. And so in the face of our suffering, in the face of our hardships, we can rejoice in the Lord, right? And Paul encourages the Philippians to do that. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. That means every moment of every day is an opportunity for you and me to rejoice in the lordship of the king. 
If you're wondering, what should I do tomorrow? Rejoice in the Lord. If you're wondering what you should do next week, rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice in the king. We have a good king who rules for the good of his people. And we celebrate this. We rest in his peace. In this world, we will have trials in our circumstances. But in the face of that, we can have an internal joy that's expressed to the world because we are rejoicing in the lordship of King Jesus. So we rejoice in the king. Continuing into verse 5, uh, Paul tells the Philippian church, he says, let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone, right? Now that word reasonableness is kind of a tricky word. In fact, if you have, if you look at different Bible translations, you'll see it translated a couple different ways. In fact, if you have an ESV, which is what I'm preaching from, uh, in, my, in my translation, there's a little four next to the word reasonableness. And if you look down at the bottom, it says it could mean gentleness as well. Uh, that word in the Greek language was not a, not a common word, and it, and it has the idea of gentle, humble consideration. Right? That Paul's encouraging the Philippian church, express this gentle, humble consideration to everyone that you come across, Right? Gentleness and humility are defining marks of Jesus' people. We're reminded of Matthew 11, where Jesus says very famously, he says, Come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. And so when Jesus Christ defines his own heart, the words he uses are gentle and humble. And anyone who is being transformed into his likeness will grow in the aspects of gentleness and humility. This is what it looks like to follow the king, to express his heart to everyone, right? Not just to the ones who are gentle and humble towards us, uh, to the ones who are harsh even, to the ones who might be our enemies. We express gentleness and humble compassion. Or we're reminded that God does not allow his reign to simply fall on the just, but on the just and the unjust. And if we are followers of the king, then our gentle, humble consideration should fall on the just and the unjust. Now, there's something I think really important in regard to our discipleship with Jesus in these two verses that we've looked at. All right, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. So the focus of our lives is the lordship of Jesus. And as we are f focusing on him, he's the object of our affection in our life. His life is an express to those around us, Right? And the point I want to make with that is, is if you want to be gentle, which I hope that we, we do, we want to be humble, there's nothing wrong with that, we're never going to become gentle and humble by focusing on gentleness and humility. The way gentleness and humility comes out of our heart is as we follow the king, as he is the object of our entire being, and we're completely reoriented around him. It's his spirit that brings about his fruit of gentleness and humility. Uh, to give you an illustration of this, I have a very, very good friend of mine named Chuck. And, uh, and we, we were hanging out, it's about eight, nine years ago. And we, we hadn't seen each other in a while. And we were having breakfast at Chick-fil-A. And we were sharing about what King Jesus had been doing in our lives. Like, what's, what's Jesus teaching you in your life? And I remember uh, Chuck telling me, he said, man, for the last seven or eight months, I've really wanted to grow in humility. 
But that's been my main thing. And so he said, I got my Bible out and I found every word, where, every place in the Bible where the word humility is mentioned and I put it all in a word document. And then I went out and grabbed a bunch of books on humility. And he said, I've, I've spent six, seven months completely consumed with the topic of humility. And he said, the result of all of that is that I have become very prideful at how humble I am. <laughs> that's such a, that's such a beautiful insight from a brother willing to be honest. It's nothing wrong with wanting to be gentle. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be humble. We can take this broader. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good wife. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good husband. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good parent. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good friend. But the reality is all of that doesn't come by focusing on it. It comes by completely recentering your entire existence around the lordship of King Jesus. And he manifests the fruit of righteousness. It's his work. And so if we want to be gentle with everyone, we have to focus on rejoicing in the Lord always, right? So we center our entire selves around Jesus and his kingship. And then we express his heart to everyone, once again, to all people. Every interaction we have with others is an opportunity to express Jesus's heart of gentle, humble consideration. This is how we show the world that we're following the king. And Paul follows that up with this short caveat. He says, the Lord is near. That's a great encouragement to us as followers of Jesus. His nearness both in the spirit, that the spirit indwells the lives of his people, but also in his coming, that the king is returning. And so that, that encourages our hearts and it fuels our hearts to continue rejoicing in him and expressing his heart to those around us. We arrive at verse 6. I'm sure this is the one that we find very easy, right? Do not be anxious about anything, right? Don't be anxious, Paul says. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important when we read this verse to remember the context. Uh, the Philippians have problems, all right? Um, first off, Paul, who is the church planter who planted the church in Philippi, is in prison and could die at any moment, right? Think about the story of John the Baptist and how he just kind of, out of nowhere, just head cut off. And so Paul's in prison. That's kind of frightening for the Philippian church. Uh, one of their church leaders, Epaphroditus, we read about in chapter 2, has, was, was sick and ill to the point of death. Uh, they, have, they have opposition outside of the church, we read about in Philippians 1. And they have conflict inside the church, we read in Philippians 4, between Judea and Syntyche, who are two ladies who have, have division, right? So there's, there's plenty of reasons, we would say, for the Philippians to have anxiety, to perhaps worry. And yet Paul encourages them. He says, don't be anxious. And here's the key. Here's the key, church. Allow anxiety allow worry to propel you into prayer. Allow it to push you into prayer. You see, the truth is, I think if we're honest, we all actually like to talk about our problems, right? We typically talk about them with one another. And we sometimes neglect talking about it to the one who cares. And so Paul says, don't, don't be anxious, but pray. And notice he says, in everything, which certainly, we, I think we have a tendency to categorize prayers. I know I have a tendency to do that, if I'm honest, 
to think there's like really important prayers, but then there's like the lesser prayers. But God is a good father. And he loves to hear the serious prayers, the, the, you know, the sickness, disease, whatever it is. But he also loves to hear the simple things. Whatever gives you anxiety, let it push you to prayer. As you have a test coming up, pray for it. Trying to find a parking spot in the, the square in downtown McDonough. Like, pray for it, right? Like, like, let those things propel you into a moment of prayer. And bring it to a father who is good and righteous and who hears the cries of his people. Right? Don't be anxious, but pray in everything and do it with thanksgiving. And that raises a great question, right? What can we be thankful for when we have anxiety and worrisome thoughts in our minds? A few things we can be thankful for. Number one is first that God is aware. And there's something really comforting about that alone, church. That in my suffering and in the hurt that I feel in my heart or whatever it is, he is aware of what's going on. And when we pray, it's not a way to remind him or to wake him up. He knows. He's aware of our circumstances. He's aware of what's going on. We can be thankful for that. We can be thankful that he is available. That he is, he is, he is ready morning, midday, night, middle of the night, doesn't matter. Whenever you want to pray, God is ready to hear it. And so we can be thankful that he is aware. We can be thankful that he is available. We can be thankful that he provides what we need. Not necessarily what we want. But in the face of our hardships and the face of our suffering, we can pray with thanksgiving because we know that he is a God who will give us what we need. And fourth, I think a really important thing that we can be thankful for in our trials, and this isn't always easy, but we can be thankful that in our suffering and in our trials, God can use our suffering to make us more like Jesus. And that is a good thing. That's a paradigm shift. There was a paradigm shift in my own life as a disciple of Jesus. That my prayer often when I had anxious thoughts and things were, God, just please fix it, right? Like, please fix it and make everything better. And it had to be a paradigm shift in my life where it began to go from fix it to use it. Use the suffering. Use the hardship. Use the trial. Use the grief. Use it to repair and reshape my heart so that I would love and live like the suffering servant. Jesus, our King. Suffering can be a good thing to teach us the way of Jesus, who suffered on our behalf, who was broken so that we could be healed. And there are some lessons we have to learn in the valley. And so Paul encourages the Philippian church. He says, don't be anxious. Pray. Pray. And pray with thanksgiving. And know that you have a good Father who hears you. He hears the cries of his people. And he provides what we need. And he uses even the hard and difficult things in our lives to more mold and shape us to love and live like the king. Now Paul continues in verse 7. He says, the peace of God, that sounds nice, right? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The, the idea there is that when we have anxious thoughts and when we come to him with prayer, that the peace of God stands guard like a soldier, He's like a soldier in front of our hearts, and he stands guard. But the peace of God comes through our time of prayer. And so if we want the peace of God, which we do, I do, then we have to become people of prayer. right? And when we pray, this peace of God that guards our hearts and it guards our minds, it guards our most inner self, it, it's a peace that surpasses understanding. 
This isn't just a beautiful phrase. God's peace surpasses understanding. Two, two aspects of that. First is that we cannot fathom God's peace, right? We can't comprehend it. I'm reminded of a church member I had uh, years ago at a different, different congregation who was walking through cancer. And by the, the world standards, it's like that person should just be, you know, just in remorse and gloom and this is it. And yet she walked through it with joy. How? Because she had the peace of God. She was a dear saint. But God's peace, we can't fathom this. We can't comprehend it. It comes in the worst of our trials and our circumstances, yet there is a supernatural peace that comes over us when we become people of prayer. So you can't fathom this peace, but also, number two, very important, you can't fabricate it. You cannot produce it. It's God's peace. And the world offers us all kinds of antidotes for peace and our suffering. Self-medication. If you have anxiety, turn to alcohol. Turn to drugs. Turn to sex. Turn to your television. Go buy some more stuff. Be a consumer. Do whatever you can do. Get more money. Get more fame. And none of it, none of it produces the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's all rubbish. It's his peace. And we want it. I, I, I believe that. In our suffering and in our trials, to have God's peace stand guard over our hearts. If you want God's peace to stand guard over your heart, then allow your worrisome thoughts to propel you into a prayer life. It's a good thing to do for the summer. Perhaps you're here. You say, man, I've, I've kind of gotten off on my prayer time. It's a good time to get back on. And here's a good thing. God's ear is always open so we can pray. So Paul tells the church to pray and let God's peace stand guard over their hearts. And then he says in verse 8, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? Think about them. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a great tool for discipleship right there for us, again. Notice that Paul tells them to not be anxious, like, don't be anxious, but pray, and then he tells them to guard their thoughts. You see this? We're reminded that prayer does not eliminate participation. Right? We pray, and then we participate. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 9, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And then the very next thing he does is send out laborers, right? So they participate. When we have anxious thoughts in our minds, anxious thoughts in our lives, it's a good thing to pray. But when we finish praying, it's important that we then go cast our mind on the things that are good. And not fill our minds with the junk of this world. If you, if you spend enough time in front of a television, you're going to be anxious, right? Because all we see on it is suffering and trials and hardships. And this person's mad at this person. This person's fighting this person. And this thing happened. And, and we walk away like, this is insanity. And then you hop on social media. And everybody's so nice on social media, right? It's just like fighting all the time. And then we wonder why we sit in front of our TVs that are feeding us fighting. And then we get on social media and it's feeding us fighting. And we wonder why we're anxious. For some of us, the best thing we can do in our apprenticeship with Jesus is throw our TVs and our phones in the trash can and let the king take over your life. Paul tells the Philippian church, guard your mind. 
Guard what comes in there. Think on things that are true. And when we hear this list in verse 8, true and honorable and just and pure, I hope the first thing you think of is King Jesus. Because King Jesus embodies all of this. Is there ever been anyone more true than Jesus? Jesus himself tells us that he is the way and the truth and the life. If you want to know truth, then know the king. Has there ever been anyone more honorable than the king? The one who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, ruling heaven and earth. Has there ever been one more just than King Jesus, who rules with perfect justice? Has there ever been one more pure, perfect integrity, blamelessness, holiness? Has there ever been one more lovely? 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. Jesus comes as God incarnate. That means Jesus Christ is what love looks like when it becomes a person. Do you want to know something lovely? Know the king. Think of what's commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We reorient our lives around the king. And we think on the things of him. And we think on the ones who are embodying his kingdom. When we hear the story of a child, for whatever reason, who has no family, and then a, and then a family brings them in. Doesn't just bring them into their home, but makes them their child. That sounds a lot like Jesus who adopted us into God's family. So we think on these things. These are the things that fill our minds. And it's imperative that we protect what's coming in our heads. So Paul encourages the church. He says, don't be anxious. Think on what's good. Don't be anxious. Pray and then fill your mind with the things of the kingdom. In volume verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Put these things into practice. Put these things into action. And I love that word practice because that means we haven't gotten it perfect yet. We're practicing it. We're learning. We're learning the way of Jesus, right? That's what disciples are. We're students. We're not the master. He is. We're students. And so we're learning day by day. And I want to end with, with, with this. If you're like me, I find this text to be difficult. I'm honest, like it's like rejoice in the Lord always. Do I, re, do I rejoice in the Lord always? Ah, be gentle with everyone. Am I always gentle with everyone? <laughs> Not, ooh, ooh. You know, don't ask my kids, right? Like, am I, am I never anxious? Well, no, actually, I can be. And we might find these things challenging, but I want to point you to a verse in Philippians 3, verse 12. Just, which Philippians is just beautiful anyway. The whole, the whole letter is beautiful. But in Philippians 3, verse 12, I like the way the NIV translates this. Paul's talking about all the stuff of Christ and how he's, he wants to know Jesus in his resurrection and to know him in his sufferings and to, to engage this lifestyle. And, and Paul says in verse 20, he says, I haven't, I haven't you know, got this right yet, but one thing I'm doing, I'm pressing on, and listen, to take hold of that of which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You know, I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than this idea that Jesus took hold of us. In Christ Jesus, we find a king who doesn't cast stones at us when we fall. In Christ Jesus, we don't find a king who turns his nose up at us. In Christ Jesus, we don't find a king who is repulsed by sinners. We find a king who comes in and grabs hold of us. And it's because he's taken hold of me Paul says, I want to take hold of this life that he's brought us into. And we might not do it perfectly. I might not rejoice in the Lord every day. I might have ugly moments with people. But even in the face of that, we can be reminded that he holds us. 
He holds us in our despair, church. He holds us when we mess it up. And that propels our lives forward. Fear and intimidation will never form a person to love and live like Jesus. What changes hearts from the inside out is the amazing, redeeming, transformative, ongoing, never-ending grace and mercy of our God. And the more fully, that's right, that's great, the more fully we grasp this grace, this amazing grace, the more fully our hearts come alive. And we can rejoice in the Lord and be gentle with people and not allow our anxiety to lead us into prayer. And we can show the world what it's like to follow the King. So take heart, church. These are, these are identifiable marks that I pray are permeating out of all of us. But even in the days where we struggle, remember that there is more grace in God than sin in us. The King has overcome the grave. And he is ruling and he is reigning. And we rejoice in the Lordship of King Jesus. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus.